The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, August 10, 2023, as we record this new episode. The Chicago White Sox had a day off, and I think that came at a good time for everyone involved. On the field, the White Sox are playing better baseball. They've won back-to-back series after beating the Yankees two out of three games, including their largest margin of victory at home this season. Helping with the better plays, my man, Elvis Andrews. But while Andrews is on a hot streak, it does raise the question when the White Sox are 22 games below 500 if it makes any sense to give him this long of a run. We'll debate that, plus wonder... If the White Sox will consider opting into their part of Mike Clevenger's mutual option. Remember, he would still have to opt into his after the season. The Milwaukee Brewers visit this weekend, so we'll preview that series. Plus, pick our MLB series this weekend that we're going to be watching as the postseason race continues to shake out. But first, we need to talk about the White Sox organization. Because while I utilized a happier tone set in the stage... There's major issues at the top that's showing cracks and demonstrating the fractures between the organization and the White Sox fan base. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And uh, Jim, should I call you the captain of the cesspool? Like, where is your title when it comes to being part of the cesspool? I'm sorry, part of White Sox Twitter that Rick Hahn alludes to. Well, I like to uh, take the high ground in this and say, like, I don't know if I'm like you are. I'm not that active on Twitter. So it's just like, I like to say like, well, I'm not part of that. So I can rip them on my platform and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm independent of everything. So yeah, sorry for you folks on Twitter who uh, air out all your opinions there. I save my opinions for my blog and that's uh, a, a whole, I hold myself in a in far higher esteem. Ah, there we go. There we go. That's, yes. that's what I was expecting out of Jim. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was weird. Like, I couldn't tell, like trying to get, not giving Han the benefit of the doubt, but just like trying to, trying to listen to it in terms of like not being extremely tired of the guy and, and trying to pretend like I have fresh ears. And I couldn't tell if like he was making like the very topical reference of like, oh, 
Twitter, X, whatever you call it these days, you know, like, it, was he just like kind of doing a what's in the news, um, you know, off, mm-hmm. off the cuff um, knocking of a platform versus like criticizing the people who run it? Because I mean, his history goes both ways, but like listening it to it, like trying to see like, was he really going for the cheap shot when he has no ground to do so? Um, I could see like maybe a sliver of a chance that he was just trying to like make his, I guess, I'm not sure if it's political at this point because it is like a terribly run company independent of politics. But yeah, just it's definitely like a case of like he just didn't want to be assigned to that or, or whatnot. I don't know. But it, it was it was ill-advised and he's usually smarter than that to, um, you know, like he got in, I guess he rolled up his sleeves and got in the dirt with Keenan Middleton. So he's like, I'm already dirty. So uh, let's stay down there. Yeah. Keep throwing punches. I mean, if you missed the comment, he was alluding to on how difficult it is for players dealing with the third deck, which is a, a common reference for those coming from the minors where there isn't a third deck and you come into the majors and there is a third deck and hearing from fans up in the third deck and the cesspool, whatever it's called Twitter X and, uh, in reference to that, I think he's alluded to White Sox fans that make comments on Twitter during the games and yeah. offer offering their critique. So, yeah, I, I do think he is calling White Sox Twitter uh, a cesspool. Twitter itself is its own cesspool. We all know. I mean, there's Twitter. I mean, there's Facebook. I mean, if Twitter's a mm-hmm. cesspool, I don't know what you call Facebook, <laughs> especially the comments section and how things can quickly unravel there and get to very very dark places but i just uh i thought han already destroyed twitter trolls oh, a yeah. few years ago mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because yeah at least rick han spoke and i mm-hmm. know that scott gregor of the daily herald was trying to give rick han credit that say what you want about rick han he doesn't hide uh <laughs> sure uh, <laughs> he has hidden. In this case, he didn't. This time he didn't, but he doesn't always speak. But we heard from Rick Hahn, and we heard from Pedro Grafal. And we hear from these guys all of the time. Well, Pedro all of the time. Rick sparingly, maybe once or twice a month. We have not heard from Jerry Reinsdorf. We have not heard from Kenny Williams during this spell. And ultimately, those two are in charge of what is going on with the Chicago White Sox. So, Jim, what do you make of that? That we continue to hear from Han and Grafal, which I think now everyone, fans, media, are just tuning them out. Mm-hmm. And it's really past due time that Reinsdorf and Williams pick up the mic and, and start addressing publicly what is going on with this franchise. At least Reinsdorf. Like, Williams should be gone as well. Like... I don't really care no to hear from him um, just because he should be fired like or you know, let go uh, given a gold watch and and, you know, a honorary title or something like that. But out of decision making. Yeah, I mean, it's basically Reinsdorf at this point. And, you know, he had the opportunity to say something. Um, Paul Sullivan asked him, and I guess there are other reporters around him. And he just said no and walked away. Um, but, you know, he and. Kenny Williams were meeting with Bill Cower. I'm not sure why Bill Cower was there. Uh, former Pittsburgh Steelers coach who was on the field and Reinsdorf was with them smoking a cigar, which I guess is illegal in Illinois in public places, or at least publicly mm-hmm. owned uh, places. And 
to me, like, yeah, I think that was uh, John Greenberg's column said that, you know, this is what Kenny wants is just like to pretend like he's also an NFL exec or to like kind of uh, occasionally rub elbows with uh, people in his other favorite sports. And that's kind of what it looks like. This point is like Reinsdorf likes owning a team because he likes being an owner and Williams likes being an executive and they're just kind of both coasting. They're, they're mailing it in They're doing minimal work or like Kenny will make a move or pick up a phone when he wants to, or when he like, it's somebody he wants to talk to or a deal he wants to make. But otherwise, like he's not going to bulk up the analytics department and the scouting department and all the, the coaching staff to give the White Sox a raise or Dodger sized front office. And he's not going to, uh, probably I'm assuming he's not going to fire Rick Hahn and say like, I'm going to, I want somebody new and I'm going to be hands off or, you know, he's not going to fire Griffal Cause I just don't know if he cares. Like, I think he likes doing the job that he likes to do. And because he gets paid well and he gets a nice title, like it's a sweet gig. Like I don't like, I don't begrudge Williams or Hahn for just carrying this as long as it goes because like they get to live where they want to live. They get to do what they want to do. They get nice titles and nice paychecks. Like, Han's been like, I think Han's kids are college age or close to it. Like he's held the same job or like, you know, roughly the same job for his entire time, which is like an unheard of in baseball, like being able to raise your family in one place and like, you know, never have to change school districts. Like, great. Like, that's awesome for him. So like, I don't, you know, when people say like Han should resign, like, I don't expect that because like, I wouldn't like if I, if, if I didn't mind, dealing with Twitter trolls or the cesspool or whatever. Like if, and I, I felt like I had a certain amount of ego to just pretend or, or, or put myself in a mindset that their criticism isn't warranted or it's unfounded. Um, like, I guess I'd keep doing that job too. So, I mean, like it all goes back to Reinsdorf and whether or not he cares and you just have to assume that he doesn't care. Um, and if you operate from that, it, it's a pretty depressing stance and mindset to operate from, but like, the way I'm looking at it is like, you know, one, you know, we watch the White Sox so you don't have to. And two, like, I'm just here for the decay. Like, I'm more interested in seeing like, you know, what happens in this late stage White Sox uh, scenario where just nothing is tended to and everybody's just mailing it in or operating with a 2007 mindset uh, when the game has changed so much. And we'll see what it looks like, but I guess that's how I'm keeping myself interested. Yeah, it's such a terrible impression to put onto your paying customers, though. Like, we don't care. You go to games, we don't care. Mm-hmm. You you don't watch on TV, we don't care. Like, I'm too old to care, Jerry Reinsdorf. I'm quiet quitting, Kenny Williams. Like, that's the impression these two are giving off. And no matter how many columns are written in the Chicago papers, how much time we spend on air, on radio and TV stations talking about these two individuals they just don't care Mm -hmm. and from a business perspective man that is terrible and at some point major league baseball is going to start asking some very difficult questions but jerry reinstorf from what i understand has largely been skipping the owners meetings And it's Kenny Williams that has been serving as his proxy at the owners meetings, especially during the CBA negotiations between the players association and the owners. It was Kenny Williams representing the Chicago white Sox. That's why they were barely involved in any of the conversations. And you weren't hearing 
about Jerry or the White Sox uh, and the latest CBA negotiations or even being part of the committee to negotiate with the Players Association. They're just so hands-off. And, man, again, this is a terrible way to do business in 2023 when the cost of entertainment continues to rise and the options of entertainment continue to expand not just the professional sports, but other media ventures as well. And I just don't understand why you would run your business like this. And when you run these types of payrolls and attendance continues to slash, the White Sox are probably going to be in the red after this season financially for the season, maybe not overall for the franchise, Mm -hmm. but there's no way that they're making money this year or making more money than they did last year because of the, the attendance decline. Will that matter to Jerry at this stage of his life? I don't think so. It will matter to what kind of payroll they're going to have though next year. He'll just cut costs. Exactly. Like he's just more interested in breaking even or thereabouts. Like, yeah, he he doesn't seem like, because we've seen payrolls rise when there's the interest rise. So yeah, I just think he's in it to break even more or less. Doesn't want to, you know, be throwing good money after bad, except that the guys he has running a team, that's all they do. Whoever ends up taking over the White Sox after Jerry is no longer the chairman, whether he sells the team or he passes away, they are going to have to spend years repairing the relationship between the fan base and the organization. We just saw this hmm. in the NFL with the Washington Commanders, with Dan Snyder now no longer owning the Commanders. And we saw that recent Hmm. surge of like optimism and hope. And they had like record number of season tickets that were sold, but Mm -hmm. I'm still curious. Like, yeah, there's that instant spark, but it's got to translate to wins for the commanders. If they're not winning right away, do you go back into a lull? Like I could kind of see that with the white Sox. If that at some point through this decay that you brought up, that we all survive this and Mm -hmm. We see the other side. How long is it going to take before everybody has that bad taste out of their mouth? I, I was not in Chicago. I did not live in Chicago until 2012. So that was after the Blackhawks finally won the cup in 2010, Jim. So mm-hmm. I don't know what that translation was like between the city and the Blackhawks, between Bill to Rocky Wirtz. If it was just that instantaneous, it was pretty that was good much vibes. immediate. immediate. Yeah, I mean, this okay. is. Like the franchise is so poorly run right now that it might not take much time at all to repair. Like, okay. Uh, Cause I remember like with the uh, Blackhawks, when Bill Wirtz died, like the first question in everybody's mind was, Oh, are the games going to be on TV? Like there wasn't any kind of like, you know, Oh, that's a shame. You know, um, condolences, the worst no family. Remorse. Not remorse. Just like, there was no reason to feel for the guy because like he had such a detached, uh, mode of running the team that there was no way to form a connection with them, even if you wanted to. And most fans didn't want to, they just ignored the team uh, or just were alienated by it and just drifted away. So like, this was like their one chance when Bill Wirtz died and Rocky Wirtz took over. And sure enough, like almost immediately started putting some games on WGN. Like they didn't have the, uh, you know, airtime to put every single game uh, for the rest of the season on TV. But like by the, before the end of the season, some games were on WGN, I think. And like there were at least nods to what Bill Wirtz had done wrong. Like Rocky Wirtz would say like, my dad's been doing it all wrong just quietly. 
writing some wrongs about like everything that Bill Wirtz had done poorly. And so like fans are like noticing it right away. It still had to translate into wins, but like he had done so much to alienate casual fans or alienate loyal fans and like do nothing to attract casual fans that the fact that, you know, Rocky Wirtz is even trying, um, you know, it made it quite apparent like, huh, I like this. You know, we'll see if it actually means anything, but I like this. And, you know, that bought goodwill. And then, you know, they had Kane and Taves and that made it that like supercharges basically. But like, right. even if they didn't have that kind of sneaky head start and just ex exactly into like how successful they're going to be, like just the, the fact that the ownership cared about fans again uh, made a huge difference. So I could see it being as simple as that. I, and I know like a lot of fans are like, well, you know, be careful what you wish for. They could move the team. And like, I've, I've never really believed in that mm -hmm. uh, one, because like there are no markets as good as Chicago, even the second team in Chicago, like they're doing fine and they're doing fine despite being run like crap. <laughs> like they're, yeah. they're, despite not even trying, like stadium is put, still in good shape too. That's key. Yeah, you can buy time with that, even if it takes a while to like figure out. Like, they're not going going to mow it down after twenty twenty nine. Say like, oh, nobody's using it anymore. Uh, you know, let's uh, you know detonate it. Like, no, there there are ways to extend it. So like, there's that. Uh, but you know, I'm just thinking if you put the White Sox in Cleveland, what would they draw? Like eight hundred thousand? Like based on the recent track record of just how poorly it would be a struggle to draw they, a million. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you put the Guardians. You know, their recent track record, their, their last decade in Chicago, they're drawing 2.5 to 3. Yeah. And like, that's basically what the the model that, you know, or that's kind of just the financial model I follow. Like, the league wants to expand to 32 teams anyway, so they don't want to burn an expansion market relocating a team that they'd want to backfill. Chicago has a two-team market already that's healthy. Like, they don't have to worry about territorial rights. You know, if they lost a team in Chicago, it might be hard to replace them in Chicago because maybe the Cubs say, no, we don't want that. We're going to drive a hard bargain because now we own the entire city and we're not going to let another team into our territory. Like that's everything the league has to consider. And the league's just not going to, you know, they're not going to let an owner kidnap a team and relocate them to Oklahoma City or something like that. They're going to say like, you know, they're going to vet the owners based on like, you know, we're going to keep the team. And like Chicago, there are enough people with money in Chicago who want to be in Chicago. And all it takes, I think, is one good year. Like out of you know, after Reinsdorf, like say, like if Reinsdorf sells, um, I'm trying to think of, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, Melody Hobson is that mm -hmm. the name I'm thinking of? Yeah. Let's just say like she takes over a team, somebody with like you know, uh, a good name and some involvement in the city. Like oh, let's give her a benefit of the doubt. Um, she comes in. Kenny Williams is gone. Rick Hahn's gone. They bring in. James click and somebody else and gives them free reign the team. Like automatically fans are interested. Like it has to translate into wins, but I mean that, you know, just that signals enough to where like fans will be, I'm giving this a shot. I'm coming in with open eyes. Like everything I dislike, not everything, but like pretty much like the, the three things I dislike most about the team or the two things, if you consider Han and Williams a unit are gone. So automatically I like what they're doing now. If like it, kind of, I imagine there's a grace period where you give a couple of years for adjusting. And then, you know, after five years or something like that, if nothing's, um, you know, uh, changing ultimately with the results, then maybe they check out again. But I think that any ownership taking over would get such uh, a honeymoon period, as long as they show a few things out of the gates that Reinsdorf wouldn't do. So like, that's why I'm optimistic ultimately about any kind of sale. Uh, just because like there are a lot of 
wealthy people who have nothing better to do with their money besides own a major league team. And uh, like uh, it, the White Sox are such a prime opportunity to improve the product with such minimal effort. Okay. You may have sold me because I thought just like with the attitudes right now that yes, you are right, that there'd be a grace period and there'll be some type of honeymoon period as well. But White Sox fans want to see a team that wins. Like I, I think the fan base is just tired of yeah. being mediocre. Like this is yeah. really unacceptable since 2005. Yeah. The counterpoint would be like John Sherman in Kansas city like sticking with Dayton Moore and then sticking with Dayton Moore as assistant GM and then like looking like he's more concerned about where the Royals are going to build a ballpark versus the on-field product. I mean, that's, that's what would cause, you know, just uh, that, that would be a wasted opportunity of an ownership change. And there is the risk of that, that just nothing, the White Sox stay in Chicago, but just like all the energy is focused on like building the Cobb County thing for the White Sox where Mm -hmm. they own the ballpark and all the real estate and they turn a little neighborhood into it. And, you know, it's like the Bears, the Arlington Heights and the Neighborville just turns into a dragged out process because the public money isn't there. Like that's, I can see an opportunity just, you know, going by the boards and everybody's bored of the team, just like they are in Kansas City. But like, given the market, given just, you know, how well, you know, just when you look at like, they don't have to change the logo, they don't have to change the marketing, they don't change anything. They just have to care. (laughs) It's that simple. They have to care about winning. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, the Royals have a smaller market. They had a bad TV deal. They had some things that they, you know, and that's why I think the stadium's important to them as a revenue generator, or at least like for the ownership, like a, a way to get really rich as opposed to just the normal rich you get from owning a team and having it appreciate. Mm-hmm. So like, that's why I think like, you know, they're, they're, it's not a no, like a no brainer or a given that the White Sox will improve with any ownership change. But I mean, like everything's primed to where like a competent owner who cares and you know, has Chicago type money just makes the previous administration look completely laughable in short order, just like Rocky Wirtz did uh, taking over from Bill Wirtz. Again, it's not good business. It's not good business when you have an owner and the top executive in the organization demonstrating that they don't care or they don't even want to bother addressing the media or the fans with what is happening with the product. That's bad business. No matter what silo or business vertical, we constantly see CEOs of companies facing the music type of moments, either quarterly or at least annually with big kickoffs. For example, Apple, when they're releasing their products, it's Tim Cook front and center who's running Apple these days. And if you don't like your product, he's there to talk about it, to face the music, answer tough questions from the media and address his paying customers concerns. We often see this with other sports teams as well, but not the White Sox. So if that's the impression that you want to give Jerry Reinsdorf and Kenny Williams, congratulations. You're demonstrating that you don't care about your paying customers, terrible business strategy, but that's what you're doing. And then you're continuing to trot out your press secretary, Rick Hahn, to speak on your guys' behalf while everyone's questioning why you have a job. And he points to you two saying it's up to you to decide or me, but everybody knows mm-hmm. that's just an empty comment. Rick Hahn's not going to resign. And Pedro Grafal speaks 
about culture all the time, which by the way, that's going to be a new drinky game. Drink every time Pedro Grafal mentions the word culture and you will have a very, very good time. Uh, <laughs> you will get drunk, especially in the press conference before the Yankee series. Like, what did John Greenberg say? He said culture like 11 times. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. that'd be a rough 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I think what it boils down to when it comes from the White Sox moving forward, and they even had a snafu with the scoreboard with Keenan Middleton where they blamed the software from MLB.com to upload 40-man rosters because the 40-man roster for the Yankees they had two people wearing number 93, but one of those players, the 40 man, wore 93 during spring training. So that's why I mentioned, did you just use spring training data uh, to add players? And this was in the third game of the series. And you had two other games going on, and you just conveniently not update part of the scoreboard with Keenan Middleton. Okay, that's fine. I'll Maybe you weren't being malice about it, but it is a bit incompetent uh, to not do that. And it's a... Uh... <laughs> Uh, it's another bad look for the White Sox. But at this point, when it comes to the organization moving forward for this year and even going into the offseason, do you believe anything what anyone says from the Chicago White Sox organization? No. Yeah, that's why I don't think we're going to have Sox Fest. And that was another <laughs> thing that was brought up. Yeah. There's going to be some type of fan event in the wintertime. My guess is it's going to be at the stadium and like 500 White Sox fans can participate. Or it's like a garage sale thing. Like we're going to celebrate the fans while getting rid of our old stuff. Yeah, probably that. And I ran the fan approval polls again on Twitter, which again, you can follow us on social media at the cesspool at Sox machine. You can follow me there at Sox machine underscore Josh for Rick Hahn. Do you approve of the job Rick Hahn is doing 5,096 votes, Jim? 4% 4% said yes. Only a 4% approval rate for Rick Hahn. Fewer than half the votes for Pedro Gafal's poll. Only 5% approve of the job that Pedro Gafal is doing. That's where we are as far as relationship between the Chicago White Sox front office, the man who manages the Chicago White Sox, the guy who runs baseball ops, and the owner. That is where the contention window is coming to a close is now just the pitchforks and torches and the booze, and the anger, not so much at what's happening on the field, but now towards the owner's box at guarantee rate field. And if we don't see changes this upcoming off season in a short manner in October and everybody sticks around, we already talked about apathy seeping in a few weeks ago, Jim, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what levels it would be. Like people would just be done with the White Sox in December. Doesn't matter what they do. And no one can get excited when they trade for Salvador Perez. Like a lot of White Sox fans would already be checked out and they'll get to that point, which just let me know when there's a new owner. And that's a terrible way to do business, especially in professional sports. Yeah, it's, I, I was thinking about that with the Cubs convention. Uh, Cause that's why Sox Fest came up is because the Cubs announced their convention and you know, Tom Ricketts goes out there, he gets booed. He has some lines like that. You know, he, he, I imagine like he goes through like something like presidential candidates go through with debate prep where they just, you know, do oppo mm-hmm. research and like, here's how they're going to attack you. Here are some lines to, uh, you know, respond with when you hear this complaint and you hear this and on and on. And like, he goes up there with a smile, like shrugs off booze, you know, says what he wants to say and leaves and like, 
ultimately people say like, eh, at least he stood up there. At least he took it. You know, you know and yeah. you, you have to just you know, respect him to a basic degree that like, hey, he's running the team. He's putting his face in front of the team every so often. It's not all Jed Hoyer uh, you know, being blamed or David Ross or whoever. Like, you know, Ricketts actually answers direct questions from fans and like, it, it, they don't have to. I mean, like the Cubs, we saw that with the Tribune uh, company when they ran that team. Like they kind of just ran themselves, like um, even though it wasn't successful and they just kind of bottomed out, they sold like Harry Carey and the lovable loser thing and just Wrigley Field being a big draw. And like they were fine. So like Ricketts doesn't have to do that, but he does that once in a while. And so like even though he's the market leader and doesn't have to try to, you know, differentiate himself from the White Sox. It's the White Sox job to do so. Like he goes ahead and does it. And so like, it's, it's just very glaring when you just see like, you know, the Cubs are doing it when they don't have to. Uh, and they've done it in lean years and rebuilding years. And Rickett still goes out there and takes complaints and says things people don't believe, but at least he says them to his face and, and they can disagree and people boo and feedback is given. Like in this case, it's just, you know, not only like do the White Sox don't make, you know, Kenny Williams and Jerry Reinsdorf available at SoxFest, but also now that just SoxFest is completely gone due to uh, several factors. Was that the official reason? Several factors? <laughs> that yeah, was last year's just like reason. Several factors, which we will not go into. Several factors. One, I, two, don't, three, wanna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well... That's the relationship right now between the fan base and the front office. Not very healthy, and I don't think it's going to change anytime soon unless they're, to your point, Jim, some big changes at the top of the organization. Let's talk about what happened on the field after a quick word from our sponsors. The biggest acts are visiting Chicago this summer on top of all the baseball games and other great concerts, theater shows too. It could be quite the chore and headache trying to secure tickets to all of these shows and events. Buying tickets shouldn't be stressful. Use Game Time to purchase your tickets. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for sports, music, comedy, theater near you. They've got killer deals on last minute tickets and their best price guarantee helps eliminate stressing over tickets. If you find tickets in the same section or even row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. That's why Game Time is the fastest growing ticketing app in the country. Download the Game Time app, create your account, and get $20 off your first purchase using our promo code SOXMACHINE. Terms and conditions apply. Again, create an account and use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first ticket purchase. Game Time. Last minute tickets, lowest prices, guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, so let's talk about what happened on the field for the White Sox this week as they won two out of three against the New York Yankees. A really good sign from the White Sox, still showing some effort even though this is a lost season. And someone that's still coming up with some big hits for the White Sox this past week, Elvis Andrews. So after his big series against the Cleveland Guardians, Andrews went 3-4-11 against the Yankees this weekend. He had a big bases-clearing double Wednesday night that clinched the game for the White Sox, made it got out of hand in that particular game, leading to the largest margin of victory for the Chicago White Sox at home this year, a 9-2 victory. And in his last six games, Andrews is 10 for 23 with a home run, eight RBIs, and five doubles. That's really good. But it still poses the question when anyone sees a lineup and sees Andrews in the lineup, there's a lot of White Sox fans asking, why? 22 games below 500. The season is lost. It's time to give a shot to the younger guys to see what you got, especially if you are still trying to sell false hope that the 2024 season is going to be a quote-unquote contending season for the Chicago White Sox. Jim, you wrote a column about this on Thursday. And for those that get a chance to read the column, I highly recommend doing it at SoxMachine.com. But to your point, it seems like we're probably a couple more weeks away before starting to see those big shifts in the players actually on the field. Yeah, I think, you know, second base is probably the most instructive to talk about because with catchers like, you know, um, Zavala is on the injured list. Uh, Corey Lee just got off the injured list like he had an oblique strain with the uh, Astros. So he arrived technically on the injured list and then like he the white Sox activated so like i see like the point of like having him in charlotte for a couple weeks just seeing where his game's at seeing like if his swing resembles what they think it resembled in houston before the injury make sure he's fully operational has some sense of the way the white Sox pitchers go about their business uh before going up to the majors and like calling games for their pitchers um you know carlos perez is there uh so i mean like once you have zavala back or Corey Lee's ready to go like you should have enough catchers to get through the rest of the season and so like I see the point of having Grandal around right now when it comes to Andrews is like theoretically Lenin Sosa is there he's gotten a few chances to try to stick in the majors hasn't worked yet but like he's still the best internal hope or like the closest internal hope to the majors right now in the first I guess line you'd go to in the event that like Andrews got hurt and like Zach Remlard turned into, yeah, I guess completed his turn into a pumpkin because he's cooled off and he's kind of just holding the line right now. But like, you know, when it comes to everything the White Sox have been through over the last week and all the turmoil and all the um, questions about who's going to be a leader and whatnot, like I can just see like Pedro Griffal or the White Sox saying like, let's not throw one of the veterans who's like trying and engaged and happy and playing well. Like let's not throw them out yet. Like that sends the wrong message to a team that just 
we want playing with a certain amount of competency and a certain amount of intensity. Um, yeah, that's why, like, it doesn't bother me right now because if Andres is playing well and they just cut him and they give Lenin Sosa the chance and Lenin Sosa has, like, a career OPS plus of zero, that, like, if, if they... If he gets a job and he hits like 110 with like a 130 OBP and a 140 slugging, like that just feels like, you know, Griffal's job gets harder. But also like if, you know, he's struggling and the infield's a mess, like that makes pitchers jobs harder with the defense behind him. Like just you're really turning the product into something uh, shambolic. And if you have pitchers you're trying to evaluate and you have like players who are still going to be around and still need to be motivated to a certain degree. I don't think you can mail in the season right now. That's a long way to go. Like everybody realizes September is the silly season. And so like, that's when lineups can get weird. And that's when like rosters can get weird and players can, you know, be shelved for the rest of the season. Just like, it's not worth it. But like early August seems too early to start like mailing it into that degree, because I think that kind of, either the new prospect smell or the uh, just the energy from having new guys in the lineup that only lasts so long. So I really think you should only crack that glass case like at the end of August and, uh, you know, should a prospect like Lenin Sosa start like turning it on in AAA, then like, yeah, make that change. But right now he's just kind of meh. So if Andres is playing well and they seem like a guy they can kind of either rally around or at least like be – yeah, serving like a good example, like, sure, lean on that example for a bit. Yeah, Lenin Sosa, when you look at his season OPS, it's above 800. So you may be wondering, Jim, why are you saying meh to Lenin Sosa's season at AAA? Uh, listeners and Jim, let me know if you guys discover the pattern here. We're going to be looking at month OPS for Lenin Sosa at AAA. In April, he had an OPS over 1,000. It was 1.377, so over 1,300. Month of May, a 909 OPS. That's great. June, a 782 OPS. Okay, still good. A, a little a little sluggish. July, a 671 OPS. And August, a 646 month OPS so far for Lenin Sosa. He has been in a regression month by month at AAA this year. He started off red hot. He joined the White Sox late April, early May, did not hit, went back to Charlotte, hit, hit a little in June, hasn't hit a lot in July and August. And I think we were talking, Jim, like, is this an injury that has impacted Lenin Sosa and thrown his entire season at AAA off the rails? Because I haven't seen this type of steady regression month by month from a player in a while in the White Sox minor leagues. Yeah, he had an oblique injury at the start of June, and he missed like three weeks. And he had a uh, – let me look up his numbers beforehand because um, – Well, they had might to be not be easy to do this. Yeah, they're, they're like uh, – it's hard to do a little bit because the White Sox uh, – his experience with the White Sox at the major league level gets in the way. Um, but like even with that terrible stretch with the White Sox, like still 772 OPS – beforehand so that's like over 800 easily with the uh, minor league team but then like since then 704 striking out more than a quarter of the time since coming back from the oblique injury and like the strikeout rate is what's concerning because like even at his roughest moments um with the White Sox and like he had a history of like getting called up to a level 
and being young for a ball, being young for Winston-Salem, being young for Birmingham, struggling in the first month or so, and then eventually settling in. But like, this is a case where he's returning to Charlotte. He's like at an appropriate age for the level and he's striking out like a career high. Like he's at 70 uh, strikeouts versus 17 walks. Um, and, and since the oblique injury, like he's striking out, like that's even slightly higher, uh, that strikeout rate. And that's something that we haven't seen from him. And one thing I've noticed, like when watching the occasional game, watching highlights is like, he's trying to, I think, pull the ball in the air, or at least like he's trying to, um, do some damage to the pole field because like beforehand, like his, his strength in the minor leagues is he had all fields power. But like when you get to the majors that you do have to pull the ball in the air, we're seeing with Tim Anderson right now, like hitting the ball, the opposite field mildly. Well, uh, doesn't do the damage it used to. So I think in order to be like a, a dangerous hitter, you have to be able to do some damage to the pole field, which is not Sosa's natural tendency. And so he's like pulling the ball a little bit more. He's hitting the ball center field more right field. Contact is down a year over year, but like, it's not doing much damage, a lot of pop-ups and such. So like, I still think, you know, whether it's the oblique injury, you know, hampering him a little bit or just something off with the swing as he tries to figure out how to do damage at the major league level and it's holding him back in the minors, like he's going through something right now. And so like, I think if you brought him up the majors right now, like I think it'd be pretty bad. Like, and we've seen him be pretty bad when he's going good. So like, I just don't have a whole lot of faith in like saying, who cares? Like give him that run. It's like, you can do that a few weeks from now. And if he posts like a 400 OPS in September, like it'll be the same as doing that in uh, you know August. And if he's a little bit better, like 600, 700, uh, you know, in September, it's like you're still in the same spot where you would be if you were doing that in August. Where like, oh, he's he's improving. There's something there. Still don't want him to be our, our plan A, but like maybe you know he can be a plan B or a plan C. Lenin Sosa on June 1st before his oblique injury was hitting 327, 388, 627 slugging in AAA. And then he had the oblique injury return on June 20th. And since his season slash line has dropped to 269 batting average, a 311 on base percentage and slugging 522. Significant drops across the board for Lenin Sosa since his oblique injury in June. So, as someone that doesn't watch every single Charlotte Knights game, and but I do see a lot of people advocating the White Sox should call up Lenin Sosa to play over Elvis Andrews. Not only is he struggling, he may not be healthy. Yeah. You already have a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like, What's so a little it, more? Yeah. So here's the question that I got for you, a little out-of-the-box thinking, because there is someone that's been hitting really well, not in Charlotte, but in Birmingham. Can Brian Ramos play second base, Jim? Uh, let me look at his game log because I think they'd not given up on it, but I think they thought like, oh, his path is third base. Um, right. He's he's played third base this year, but for Project Birmingham last year, Ramos did play eight games at second base. So this is yeah. why I posed is the he question. Been exclusively th- yeah, he's been exclusively third base this year. Yeah. Um, Like, I don't like the idea of like, forcing him like right now to be like a late season like audible to say like you're a second baseman now while you're finally going well after dealing with his own injury and being held back by his own injury for the first couple months so i would like to see him play third base like get completely past um you know like just the development burp that he had and it seems like he's gonna do that maybe like arizona fall league i could say like if he's 
if the shape of the infield is such like he can get more reps at second than at third, because uh, I imagine he's going to go to the AFL after the season, given the time he missed early on, like that might be a good time to say like, hey, how do you look at second? Um, especially if it gets him as many plate appearances as possible doing that, playing both positions. Wouldn't mind that, but like right now, I think just keep him at third, get him through the rest of the season, get him on the upswing that it seemed like he was poised to ride for a bit uh, before the spring training groin injury hit and uh, go from there. Yeah, it's just like with these minor league prospects, I mean, Jose Rodriguez has not been hitting all that well in Birmingham. When you just look at it like his season numbers, and I'd have to do a breakdown, I mean, Rodriguez at Birmingham this year city 262 with a 295 on base percentage. And slugging just 447. He's been it's, better though. He had a he had a miserable start. So I I know he had a miserable start. So let me look at the the month by month splits in August. I mean, well, August is not great. Uh July, July was better. 293, 316, 507. June, he had a 976 OPS. So June, July, much better. August a little struggle, but Rodriguez doesn't walk, and I think that's gonna be very that will definitely expose him, and the White Sox didn't even bother giving him a plate appearance when he was with mm-hmm. the team. I get where White Sox fans are coming from, that you want to see these new faces, especially when it comes to Lenin Sosa and Jose Rodriguez. And there's even some talk as well as like, well, they got to get like 200 plate plus plate appearances. No, they don't. Sometimes you could just tell, or... You have more talented players behind them coming up. And this is the situation for Lenin Sosa and Romy Gonzalez and Jose Rodriguez. This is why I bring up Brian Ramos. Because you got Colson Montgomery. You just drafted Jacob Gonzalez in the first round. Uh, These guys may leap you. So you're not going to get a lot of chances here to prove that you're going to be in the major leagues, at least for the White Sox in the middle infield. Whatever opportunities you get, you got to crush it or you're to get passed by. So even if they only have like 30 plate appearances, like Jose Rodriguez, if he only gets like 30 career plate appearances with the White Sox, so many people have spent so much time talking about Popeye that he could get leaped and he could be forgotten. Like all the times we talked about Jordan Guerrero, remember mm-hmm. him? I feel like, Oh, he could be in the white Sox future starting rotation. It never made it. Yeah. He never made it. Like that's the trouble here for Sosa and Rodriguez. And I'll throw in Romy Gonzalez when he gets healthy again, these guys are coming and they have more talent than you. So if it's, Pick or choose, it's probably going to be the more talented guys always. Yeah, Rodriguez, like, he's having, like, a, you know, a kind of a quiet August, but he's still hitting 286. Like, the bat to ball is there. He's just not really hitting for much power, but, like, the, you know, the average is fine. Since June, he's hitting 298, 333 OBP, 497 slugging. So, like, at the very least, it seems like he should be in Charlotte right now, just seeing, like, is he swinging and missing a ton? Like, cause his strikeout rate is a little bit higher. Some of that is noise from the tacky ball that they're using the first half. He's still striking out a little bit this month, but I wouldn't mind seeing him in, in Charlotte just to understand like guys who can pitch in different sequences and guys who might have more, you know, might lack velocity, but have breaking balls. You know, uh, how much are you chasing? Like how much are you, uh, you know, going out of the zone and, and not doing damage? Like I'm thinking like Gilbert Sanchez, just how like he hit for no power and, Charlotte 
even though Charlotte like invites you to hit uh, 12 plus homers a year, even with no power, just because like he just doesn't have a power swing and they just, he, he puts his bat on the, on any kind of pitch that's around the zone. And triple uh, a pitchers are good enough to be like, Oh, I'll just throw your slider a little bit off the plate and he'll just roll it over. And that's fine. Like Rodriguez, I think you can learn a little bit from him and Charlotte now, just understanding like how much of your weaknesses are due to just plate discipline and how much of is it due to like just physical limitations in terms of like, how small he is and how much he needs to get out of his frame to hit with an impact. I mean, the proven window for these two Sosa and Rodriguez is shrinking. Yeah. Like the, the more I watch Colson Montgomery, the white Sox spent a first round pick on Jacob, on Jacob Gonzalez. Brian Ramos has been hitting really well. Like your proven window is shrinking, which obviously the counter to that would be, well, to counter your point, Josh, and using your own words against you, if their proven window is shrinking, let them prove it, but they also kind of have to earn it. And right now, like Sosa's got to prove that he's healthy and he could have an OPS higher than 700, which he hasn't had since June. And let's see what Rod- Rodriguez could do. I mean, he hasn't gotten to AAA yet, but I think you could just skip AAA if you really want to and, and see what you got. Like, but I'm with you. I'm, I'm not, I don't have a lot of confidence. I don't have a lot of confidence that either either of these guys are going to stick. This is why I bring up, can Brian Ramos play second base? Because evidently the White Sox are not done with Yohan Nakata playing third right now, which we talked about that in our previous episode, but whatever. So that's the White Sox situation when it comes to Elvis Andrews and why he continues to get playing time. And to Jim's point, the White Sox don't have a lot of healthy catchers at this moment. Let's talk about the pitching. And one pitcher in particular... And that's Mike Clevenger. Mike Clevenger this season has a 3.55 ERA and he has made 15 starts for the White Sox in his last seven starts with the White Sox. There was some time off because of injury. Clevenger's ERA during that span is 2.17. That's pretty darn good. And I have to give the White Sox credit. They have been doing a good job of keeping Clevenger within 90 pitches, not exceeding that amount to try to minimize the exposure, either times for the order exposure or his stuff diminishes as he continues to go deeper and deeper into his starts. And we have talked about a great length, Jim, about the White Sox starting rotation next year, and they have job opportunities. Has Clevenger done enough to convince you the White Sox should opt into their part of the mutual option? Again, Clevenger has his side that he has to opt into, too. I would say just because he's only thrown 78 innings on the season, uh, because like sometimes bicep issues can be tied to shoulder problems and seems like he's past it, but just... Yeah, right now I'd say like no, just because I'd want to see him get through the rest of the season, get to 100 innings before like, you know, saying like, yeah, he could be a part of a rotation because if he's not throwing 100 innings, he's not really doing what you need. Um, I guess the good news is like the ugliness that accompanied him into the organization, like hasn't seemed to, you know, I guess after like the, you know, going out to the field uh, with a gold digger as a soundtrack, like, after that uh, poor choice, like hasn't done anything to bring back, um, you harken back to those uh, dark days. Like he's been more or less like a anonymous ball player, like pitching well, not getting in any trouble, like not inviting controversy. Um, so like, I guess in terms of like the White Sox having already absorbed the stink of signing in the first place, like hasn't been any worse. So like, 
that to me isn't so much of a concern now if he's like being a solid citizen. Um, but right now I just think like innings are still short. Um, the, the, the catches that like, if he, if the White Sox exercise their mutual option, like that means that, you know, and this is the tricky thing with mutual options is like, well, if Clevenger gets $4 million anyway, then he basically has to bet that he can do better than one year and 8 million on the open market, which if he tops hundred innings based on the way he's pitching, like, yeah, he'll top that. So that's why it seems like it's going to be a moot point anyway. And 4 million is just going to be the, uh, the parting gift. Yeah. I think Clevenger is going to opt out so he can go test free agency and try to get a multi-year deal that doesn't yeah. have options. I think we're to see a lot of that for pitchers that do have options that they're going to opt out and try to establish a, yeah. Well, a multi-year deal. So they get paid. Yeah. Cause I mean, the thing is like, if you're Clevenger, if the white Sox, uh, extend or uh, accept or, or exercise their half of the mutual option for 12 million. And he says like, yeah, I'm good for that. The white Sox could trade him. Like he has trade value at one year and 12 million. So like he may as well pick his own destination. Even if he feels like the white Sox aren't going to deal him. Like that's why it seems like it, these mutual options are so seldom exercised because like uh, the player would seem to have like, well, if I can get 8 million anywhere and I can choose where I go, like why would I risk giving the White Sox the opportunity to send me somewhere I don't want to go. Yeah, if he goes elsewhere and he signs for one year, 12 million, to your point, he's going to get 16 million next yeah. season. So that's why I think ultimately Clevenger opts out. But I was curious yeah. on what your thoughts were from a White Sox perspective and what they would do with yeah. Mike Clevenger. Because like the that, that's the area that I think this free agency, because they have to mm -hmm. add another starting pitcher, they're going to be shopping in. Like there's a top tier that's not even... Let's not get into delusion. They're not shopping there. Yeah. They're starting pitching. But spending another 10 to 15 million on a single year for a veteran pitcher to help on the rotation, that's probably where the White Sox are going to be living. And that's where Clevenger lives. Yeah. I'm thinking, like, in terms of like where the inning, like, if Clevenger gets hurt again, my, yeah, what they determine to be a minor injury, but ultimately, like, say, cost him the last three starts of September, maybe that's like gets into the territory where one year and 12 million makes sense for both or like one year and 8 million makes sense for Clevenger. If he comes up short of like, you know, hundred innings, if he throws like 90, but even then, like it would seem like given just how there is no, you know, theoretically no such thing as a bad one year contract. Um, he could probably do better than one year and 8 million as long as like the run prevention is there, which I think it largely has been like if he only throws 90 innings, but like his 90 innings were good. Like I still think he could do probably like at least 10 million on the open market. Yeah. And again, it's all about a money game. We've already seen players in the white Sox in previous years opt out and <laughs> go elsewhere and take that buyout money and uh, find a new ball club. AJ Pollock last year. And I'm going to guess Mike Clevenger will do the same this upcoming off season. Uh, quickly, the last thing about this White Sox-Yankees series, the Yankees are struggling. I know you mentioned it when we did the series preview. They have a problem getting on base. That was not the case this series. They drew 20 walks in three games against White Sox pitching. The Yankees can't drive in runs. Like They mm -hmm. had that one game where they won. They scored seven runs and some big home runs. Aaron Judge hit a home run. When they lose, they kind of look like the Cleveland Guardians. Like, 
Aaron Judge will hurt you, and that was it in their losses. So I don't know what to make of this Yankees team. It sounds like word out of New York is that Brian Cashman is probably going to keep his job, but Aaron Boone, the manager of the Yankees, more than likely is going to get fired after Mm -hmm. this season. They're still in last place, and as I talked about in our last episode, the Yankees have not finished below 500 since 1992. And if they continue to play like this offensively, Jim, I think they're in real danger of snapping that consecutive above 500 streak this season. Like they still have quite a few division games here left to go in the last six weeks of the season. And if their offense is like this, they're going to get steamed roll by their divisional opponents. And I could see the Yankees finishing below 500. Yeah. Like looking at their lineup from the last game, the finale of the series, and like Billy McKinney's batting fifth. So, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I don't think Aaron Boone's a good manager, and I think, like, his decision-making has been exposed. He's entertaining. He's entertaining, yeah. And, you know, he can <laughs> hold court, and he can, you know, he's he's good for an ejection, but, like, uh, I don't think he's a good manager. But also, like, that lineup's bad. So, I mean, like, Cashman's another guy. It seems like he's been there forever, and, like, his ideas are getting stale. And, like, if the Yankees aren't going to be, like, the old Steinbrenner, even though they're currently run by Steinbrenners, but, like, if they're not spending George-type money with George-type standards and, like, Cashman, probably his ideas have run their course and like given the infrastructure they have and they have a big front office and such like doesn't take like a sea change in order for them to like get back to being dangerous, but probably just helps to have a new set of eyes and a new uh, new brain there just to see like what dead ends they've fallen into and can't get out of. Because I mean, like we talked about that before, like Theo Epstein hit dead ends with the Cubs, like Dave Dombrowski hits dead ends, like even if you're good if you're there for a long time and just, you know, kind of have spent yourself into a corner, might be hard to see a way to get out. So yeah, it wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if they stayed with Cashman, but also like this would be the opportunity to move on. And like even Cashman can probably get a job somewhere else. Cause he's not a bad GM. Just might be a case where like, I need a new scenario or I need a case of just, you know, White Sox wouldn't be one of them because he's used to spending so much, but it'd be a case where like take a year off and then see if like any big market needs a yeah, a new set of eyes, maybe be a advisor and such. And then like, see uh, if you have ideas to get another team out of that rut. But Billy McKinney betting fifth, like, you know, kind of fluff a Bader, like just, it's a bad lineup. And um, yeah, the pitching staff's banged up too. He had Herman getting to apparently like an alcohol induced rage and like Severino's lost and giving up doubles to Yohan Mankata, which is hard to do. So like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's amazing that there's still three games over 500. That's what's amazing about the Yankees. Like, no matter how bad their lineup looks and how you know many injuries they've suffered, they still manage to, like, scrape by, you know, with 83, 84 wins, even at their worst. So this will test that, especially, like, if Boone's on the way out and feeling like lame duck, maybe this is when it finally falls apart on them. But until that happens, you have to trust, like, the Yankees have, like, this baseline of either uh, unproven talent evaluation or just... Maybe it's the pinstripes, the aura of just like (laughs) um, sustaining them to like never have a losing record. But this will be uh, if they do finish with like 83 wins, I will be impressed given like just how everything's kind of falling apart on them. Let's quickly talk about the next series for the Chicago White Sox as the brew crew, the Milwaukee Brewers come into town. The Brewers currently lead the National League Central by two and a half games or 62 and 54 in the season. So all of your Chicago Cubs Friends and family members, they're going to be rooting for the White Sox this weekend as the Cubs are two and a half games back of the Brewers. The Brewers have a one-game winning streak right now. In their last 10 games, they are 5-5. Five and five. 
The pitching problems for this series, Friday night at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it's the Brewers' ace, Corbin Burns against Michael Kopech. Saturday, this is a national broadcast game on Fox. First pitch is at 6.15 p.m. Central Time. Brandon Woodruff, continuing to come back from injury, will be pitching for the Brewers against Jesse Schultens. And on Sunday, it's Freddie Peralta against Dylan Cease. That game's going to be at 1.10 p.m. Central Time. And just based on the pitching problems, Jim, this could be a tough weekend for the White Sox to score runs, especially having to face both Birds and Woodruff back-to-back. And they're all righties. So, you know, this this will test them in, in their normal weaknesses, like Andrew Vaughn, that'll test them. Uh, you know, right-hand sliders, a lot of, you know, a lot of pitches moving away from their best hitters. You know, Eloy Jimenez getting the ball off the ground, like, yeah, they're, they're, we're well acquainted with how well they perform against right-hand starters and, like, here are three good ones, uh, or at least you know two good ones and one credible mid-rotation guy. So yeah, I don't have high hopes, but uh, this will be like you know they beat the Guardians who have a bad offense. They beat the Yankees who have a bad offense. Like uh, this would be a case where like if they somehow string together three consecutive series victories, like this will be like a case of like ah oh, here's here's finally the regression of the White Sox not being as bad as they looked and having some kind of baseline of talent that carries them, except it happens to be when all the pitching talent is somehow gone. That's when they choose to do this. <laughs> yeah. The Brewers, they struggle with power. Nobody in the roster has hit over 20 home runs this year. However, Christian Yelich has had a resurgence this season. He's hitting 290 with a 374 on base percentage and slugging 469. With 16 homers and 27 doubles, and he has 23 stolen bases, Yelich, according to Baseball Reference, has a 3.2 war season, so that's good news for the Milwaukee Brewers after he signed that huge deal. I have a question to you about Sal Freelich. I know you got mm-hmm. a chance to watch him in Nashville, where the AAA affiliate is for the Milwaukee Brewers. I haven't seen him since his Boston College days, and he's had a pretty positive impact at his first few games with the Milwaukee Brewers. He's already had one war. Uh, playing about 16 games for the Milwaukee Brewers. What should we expect to see from Sal Freelich in this series against the White Sox? I haven't got to see him in person this year because he was injured for the first half and I haven't been to any Sounds games in a, in probably a month or so to where like, you know, he was in the lineup. But he reminds me a little bit of Adam Eaton in terms of just not necessarily like the, I guess, the eyewash style play. Like Adam Eaton was like, I'm a little guy. I'm going to try really hard and I'm going to chomp my gum hard and like, you know, kind of run full motion and, and just, you know, you can really see the strain in everything I do. But in terms of like being somebody who, when you see him on the field, um, you're like, oh, he's on the smaller side. Like, oh, is he a leadoff guy? But like, he's got some pop, uh, you know, and he's hard to strike out. Uh, at least, you know, for a guy who hits with the power he does, like he can play like across the outfield and he's somebody like at the top of the order, but he also like hit a leadoff home run in the first pitch. So I've, I've liked every aspect of his game. And, you know, my, I guess my concern would, would have been like, if he can't cover center, does he hit for enough power to like hold down a corner or can he really get the most out of his on base skills? Like Eaton had during like his peak before the knee injury to be like, Oh, he's, He's somebody who hits enough extra base hits with the on-base skills and runs the base as well to be like somebody who isn't a traditional right fielder or left fielder, but certainly does enough across the board to like be a four or five win guy at his best. And I, th- I think he can be one of those, but I'm looking forward to seeing him play because like when he was 
functioning with the, you know, I saw him at the end of the 2022 season when he was off to a good start at AAA and be like, man, I like this guy. Like, I wish the Whites, yeah, I know the Brewers have a lot of outfielders, young ones and, and expensive ones, a mix of them. And like, if he were somehow able to be pried loose, I would like to see the White Sox get in on that. Unfortunately, like between the Brewers needing everybody with the uh, slate of injuries and also like being a first round pick, 15th overall, like, they're not going to give them away for cheap, but that was kind of like my pipe dream of just, oh man, like when you see a guy on the field firsthand and be like, I haven't seen this guy do anything I don't like. Uh, yeah, and and being able to see like, I saw Sal Freelich before White Sox fans knew who he was. Like that's kind of like when I, I get that, uh, uh, get that pull of like, oh, I wish the White Sox would overpay for him, which, uh, you know, right now it doesn't look too bad with the way he's uh, he's, you know, um, providing impact for the Brewers in his first uh, cup of coffee in the in the majors. Well, that's the White Sox Brewers series. And of course, you could read the game recaps on SoxMachine.com over the weekend. And before we wrap it up in this episode, continuing our new feature that we started in the last episode, the series we are watching, recapping the ones that we picked from last episode. I had the Marlins at Red Series. The Marlins ended up winning two out of three games one note, Jake Berger still out of the gate with the Marlins. He's hitting four for 25 with the Marlins with just the one homer, two walks, and six strikeouts. But this is what really opened my eyes when watching this series, Jim. The Marlins are 26-10 and 10 in one-run games. Mm-hmm. And at some point, luck has to be involved uh, to be that successful in one-run games. But boy, it just seems like that's the comfort level for the Miami Marlins is having no margin of error <laughs> or very little uh, margin of error is when they are most comfortable battling in a one run game. And I don't know if this is going to continue on for the rest of the season for the Marlins, but they do a really good job. And, you know, cap tip to that new coaching staff for continuing to press the right buttons to, to hold on in these series and in these tight games. But yeah, the Marlins winning two out of three against the Reds uh, helps the Marlins right now. They're back as the sixth seed in the National League wild card and postseason outlook before heading into this weekend. Uh, Angels and Giants, Jim, the Angels won two out of three. Anything that mm-hmm. caught your attention in that series? Basically, I was hoping for like Lucas Giolito to bounce back from his start. Like I would hate to see him like, you know, he gave up nine runs, I think over three and two thirds his previous time out and just it would you know, given how much the angels try to put into this deadline period to not waste the last months of Shohei Otani's existence in Anaheim, like it would suck if like Giolito were a party to having wasted that opportunity. Like if the angels don't get there, the angels you know, have proven year in and year out that they just can't put a team around him. But like if Giolito like contributed to that with like a seven ERA, then that would have been disappointing. But like he looked normal like he looked like his typical self like one bad inning but otherwise held the Giants in check and then like he set up Otani winning the finale of that series so that's kind of what you want him to do and he held up his end of the bargain at least in that regard so he's had like one decent start one awful start and one good start I think over his three you know finally picked up his first win but hopefully like this shows that like he's he's still a good pitcher for Anaheim and like even if it doesn't work out people won't say like oh, like Giolito was a mistake or that was a disaster. It's just more along the lines of like, oh, it just didn't work out the way things normally don't work out for Anaheim. Yeah, the Angels are 10 and a half games back of first place. They're in fourth place in the American League West. They're six and a half games back in the wild card. They're running out of time, though. 
Yep. Uh, 44 games left to go in the season to make up six and a half games. They have to get hot. They really could use Mike Trout back in that lineup. Meanwhile, the Giants at 62 and 53, they're six games back at the Dodgers, but they have some comfort in the wild card race. They're two and a half games ahead of the jam pile, the traffic jam of Miami, the Cubs, the Reds right now. So they got some breathing room while those three teams battle for the last spot in the National League wild card going into this weekend and the last six weeks of the season. Series to watch this weekend. Mine's real quick here because I will be going on vacation, folks, and I will be in Seattle for this one. Mariners versus Orioles. I'll be going to the Saturday game, Jim. And boy, Seattle. I thought they were kind of left for dead uh, <laughs> when they were in fourth place. Red hot. Red hot as of late. The Mariners are 10 games above 500 at 62 and 52. And the Baltimore Orioles still have the best record in the American League. I think there's going to be a lot of eyeballs, especially late at night during this series as the Mariners have a seven-game winning streak. They have won nine of their last 10 games. and The Orioles have won seven of their last 10 games. But I'll be pretty excited to check out a new stadium to get a chance to watch these two great teams play against each other. What's a series outside of the White Sox or Brewers that you're going to be paying attention to this weekend, Jim? At first glance, I thought it was going to be Twins Phillies because like the Twins seemed like they were primed to finally walk away with the division and then they lost three in a row to the Tigers. And now Dallas Keuchel is starting the first game against the Phillies and like maybe they just, you know, get dragged on 500 and it's all in the Guardians to, like finish 500 themselves, but I don't really like watching the Twins or like not that I would anyway, but like they're just, you know, they're every central team is sad. So like in terms of like teams that aren't necessarily sad or are at least in like really interesting positions, like blue Jays Cubs, I think is intriguing because like the Cubs have to stay hot or like have to, you know, like they had a game turn on a bad bunt decision. And like, so David Ross's decisions are under the gun, but also like the blue Jays, like this, here come the Mariners now for that third wildcard spot. And like they've been kind of coasting all year and not finding like the gear that everybody thought they would. And like, They've been comfortable in that third spot and realizing like once the Red Sox and Yankees aren't getting there, it's like, oh, third place in the AL East will be a, a lock for the uh, wild card. But now it's like, well, you know, here come the Mariners uh, coming on hot and, and, and on their tails. And like the Astros have been uh, giving the Rangers a run for the money, but like the Rangers are also good. So it's like, it seems like the, you know, that third place in the AL East isn't going to be the automatic stamp that it looked early on when the Rays were all, you know, like you're know, taking a run at like the all time wins record. Um, you know, they've, they've fallen to second place. Now the Orioles are the hot team. So the blue Jays are like, it seems like they've, this would be the time for them to like turn it on, you know, in, in order to, you know, make sure that they maintain their cushion, but uh, the Cubs, you know, they're in the same spot. So like two motivated teams who can't really, afford to slip up at this point even though august is like a really long month for teams that are you know short whether it comes to injuries or just in talent and uh so that, that's why i think like even if you know the cubs aren't a team like i enjoy watching or just because you know it's like it's the cubs still like as a baseball fan and as like somebody interested in like how david ross is gonna fare now that expectations and and mm-hmm. uh you know just are they good enough to get david ross fired like that's something i'm intrigued by Well, we'll see on how those series go. And uh, again, I'm out next week. So Jim's going to be running the show 
And he's got a very exciting guest in the next episode. You want to promote that, Jim, on what white, uh, our listeners can look forward to? Sure, yeah, because I think I've already tipped it on Patreon and such, but Scott Carroll, uh, who you may remember from the 2014 through 16 White Sox, will be joining me for a wide-ranging conversation uh, that was even wider-ranging than I envisioned because the White Sox uh, <laughs> uh, just had that clubhouse like near mutiny, apparently, and... Uh, yeah, so given that he's no stranger to Kenny Williams, Rick Hahn front offices and clubhouses that uh, uh, have problems while they're in charge, like I also asked him about that. But I, I did include like a um, an introduction, uh, a lengthy one, just saying like, I didn't say like, or I didn't think, oh, the White Sox, you know, clubhouse is making national news again. So here's Scott Carroll. Like, <laughs> like that'd be a bit weird. Like we do, we, we have a variety of reasons why we talk to him. And uh, so it's fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So that's what you guys have to look forward to on Monday. As I'm out, you're all going to have to keep me up to speed on what happens for the White Sox against the Brewers. And of course, the series at Wrigley between the White Sox and Cubs and when the White Sox head out to Denver to face the Colorado Rockies. I'm going to be missing those series, but I'll be back shortly to you guys before the White Sox have their homestand against Seattle and Oakland later in August. So enjoy that White Sox baseball and best of luck, Jim, as you run things as I am away. I have a lot of confidence in you that nothing will break and uh, look forward to chatting with you again, sir, in a week. Enjoy your vacation. Thank you, sir. That'll do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. We also upload our podcast into our YouTube channel now, which you can subscribe to at youtube.com slash Machine. And you can follow us on the various social media accounts. Cesspool, I'm sorry. X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Instagram and threads were at Socks Machine. You can follow me there at Socks Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and you want more, you get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content, ad free versions of both the podcast and website, and when we have new Socks Machine swag, they're the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all of Tate Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment 
and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.